Good morning, Boker Tov, everyone. I want to thank uh, the sponsors of this morning's Parsha class, Mendy and Cheryl Bistritsky, in memory of her father, Mordechai, Isaac Ben Barachia Aryeh, whose neshama should have an aliyah. I also want to dedicate our class to our brothers and sisters in Israel this morning who are under the barrage of rocket fire from Gaza, along the Gaza border. They've been in uh, bomb shelters all morning. A lot of mortars fired and the rockets fired and Iron Dome intercepts. And of course, we daven for their safety, their well-being, and uh, peace, a lasting, real, authentic peace in Eretz Israel and Israel and, uh, and beyond. This week we have the privilege of learning Parshas Baaloscha. Parshas Baaloscha is a real turning point in the Torah because it uh, really transitions us from this nation, Sefer Bracious, the birth of a family, Sefer Shmos, the birth of a nation, Vayikra, the laws of that nation, particularly the priests of that nation. And now in Sefer Bamidbar and Baaloscha itself, there's this major turning point where in the growth of this, of this baby turning into an adolescent is now an adolescent who is complaining. Went from a sense of gratitude for everything. We can relate to this if you have adolescents living in your home. Of gratitude for the, uh, for the shelter and for the food and for all the provisions to an attitude of entitlement, of complaining, of being disgruntled, and this becomes a theme that now uh, carries us forward. So Parshas Baaloscha represents a real turning point in that sense. But let's go from the beginning. As always, we'll summarize the Parsha, and then we're going to get into a specific section at the end of the Parsha. So Baaloscha begins with the command of Aaron. Aaron's commandment to light the menorah. Fascinating the different branches of the menorah. They all lead towards the middle branch. They represent the many wisdoms of the world. Some of the branches represent the lay leadership, others the rabbinic leadership or the, or the, uh, rib, the uh, religious leadership, but they all turn towards the center. Aaron is instructed to light the menorah. And the next passage tells us something very unusual, somewhat bizarre. Vayas kein Aaron el menorah Moshe. Aaron did exactly what he was commanded to do. Now, would we ever suspect Aaron otherwise? Aaron is the great Aaron. We know Aaron by now. Would we have suspected that God would tell Aaron what to do and he would not do it? Does the Torah really need to testify that Aaron did it correctly? Vayas kein Aaron. So Rashi writes, Vayas kein Aaron, lahagit shvacho shel Aaron, shiloshina. This is the praise and the admiration of Aaron. Shiloshina, he didn't change. God said, set it up this way, light it this way, do it this way. And what did Aaron do? Exactly as he was told. But did that really answer our question? Would we have suspected that Aaron would distort or manipulate or somehow do the mitzvah differently than the way he was instructed? What is the Torah testifying after all? Svasemes is a beautiful comment here. Says the Svasemes... The praise, the admiration of Aaron. Shiloshina, Shiloshina does not mean he didn't change the process, the procedure of the lighting of the menorah. What didn't change? Aaron. Aaron's elevated to this position of distinction. Aaron is the Kohen Gadol, the same Aaron who you remember we studied together when it's time to bring the first sacrifice. He hesitates, he demurs, and Moshe says, You were chosen for this, approach the Mizbeach. 
That same Aaron who at first hesitated now is in this position of great distinction. Now he has the opportunity to light the menorah every day. The great praise of Aaron is he never lost his enthusiasm. He didn't lose his joy. He never shaloshina. He didn't change. That same exuberance, that same zeal, that same zrizus, that same humility, the same Aaron remained the same Aaron. The Ramban says shaloshina is, even though Aaron had the right to assign it to his sons, to the other Kohanim, he himself continued to do it. He lit the menorah himself each and every day. That's what it means. But I think it's a very beautiful svasemis and it's the encouragement that we have, shiloshina, not to become accustomed or to develop habits, to lose our enthusiasm and not to change just because of a position of distinction or of opportunities that we have. The word beha'aloscha is a funny word. Beha'aloscha. How does our score translate it? When you kindle the lamps, beha'aloscha, but that's not really what beha'aloscha means. The root of the word beha'aloscha is, ayin lamedei is to lift, beha'aloscha, when you lift the candles. So Rashi's bothered by this. And Rashi quotes two interpretations. Number one, ashem she'alav ola kasa ba'adla kasam lashon aliyah. A flame does not go down. Where does a flame flicker? Up. By the way, Kiner Hashem Nishmas Adam, that a human being, the soul, is likened to a flame. We light a seven-day candle when someone's sitting Shiva. We light a Yizker candle. We light a Yeritzite candle. The candle is the symbol of the Neshama. Just like the candle flickers up, so too the Neshama strives, aspires up. So first Rashi quotes the Gemara in Shabbos, the first interpretation, the reason the word is used to describe light in the menorah is that the Kohen, Aaron, or subsequently the Kohen, has to hold the candle there until the wick ignites on its own. Until the wick catches fire, ignites, lights on its own. V'odarshu, but then Rashi quotes a second interpretation. Mikan shamala That the coin would ascend a platform. He didn't light the menorah from the floor. He stood up, he ascended a platform, and he lit the menorah from the platform. I saw a beautiful pshat, I don't remember by whom, who interprets or who integrates the two interpretations as one. We said, what does it mean, Baha'aloscha? It's a funny word to use to choose to light the menorah. So Rashi said, either it means... The flame flickers up. You have to hold the candle there till the wick catches fire and lights on its own. Or alternatively, he has to step up. How could the two mean the same thing? So the Sefer says that in Chinuch, in inspiring the next generation, in Chinuch, the mission, the goal of Chinuch is to inspire a child until they ignite, until they illuminate on their own. They don't need us pressuring they don't need us conditioning. They don't need us placing consequences. But until the shalheves is ola me'ileah, till the flame catches fire, ignites on its own, till the child is internally driven on their own. How does one achieve that? How do you inspire children that their flame catches fire, that they're living life on fire, enthusiastic, exuberant, zeal? How do you achieve that? You have to build a platform that you step up, 
When you stand on a platform, when you model for your children your own enthusiasm, your own excitement, then children will follow. You want the Shalhevas to be Ola Me'elah. You want the flame to ignite, to flicker on its own, to be internally self-motivated and driven. They have to see that example in you. You have to step up on a platform. They have to see the example in you. And only then does it happen. Why is Aaron chosen? Why is he singled out here as having this mitzvah? Why not all koanim, daber al-Aaron? So the first Rashi tells us, Lama nismacha parshas manola parshas anasiyim. What is the connection what is the continuation or the juxtaposition of our section with the end of last week? Last week was the Nesim. We spoke about it. The redundancy, the repetition, the 12 Nesim all brought the same carbon, or at least externally, superficially, seem to have all brought the same carbon, even though they each brought their own intent. Why does the mitzvah of lighting the menorah immediately follow? Rashi tells us why. When Aaron saw the Nesim got to each bring their carbon, he was saddened. He became despondent. The tribe of Levi was not included. They didn't get to bring a carbon. So Hashem responds. Now if you're Hashem, what would you have responded? Aaron basically says to Hashem, it's not fair to me. Why does my sibling, why do the other tribes get to do this? I want to do this. It's not fair to me. Now, as a parent, what did you respond to your children when they said, it's not fair to me? Life's not fair. You get what you get and you don't get upset. We have all kinds of parental cliches or um, mottos that, you know, everyone gets their own thing. What did Hashem answer? Aaron, relax. They get to bring a one-time carbon. But you and your progeny? You function in the Mishkan. You're going to light the menorah. And that's why our parsha begins with the lighting of the menorah. Hashem's response to Aaron's complaint was, don't worry, don't worry, you're going to get to light the menorah. And I ask, why didn't Hashem say, Aaron, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Why didn't Hashem say, Aaron, life's not fair. Too bad, my friend, go back to your business. Why does the Rebona Shalom entertain Aaron's complaint? Aaron is like a child. I want to get to do that. It's not fair they get to do that. Why don't I get to do that? And what does Hashem say? Oh, you're right. Don't worry. I'm going to give you an even better opportunity. Why doesn't he put Aaron in his place? What kind of kvetch? What kind of complaint is this? I think the answer is it's an amazing, amazing makor. It's a tremendous source. That when it comes to ruchnius, when it comes to spiritual aspiration and envy, then it's a healthy thing. When it comes to the material world, you say, it's not fair to me, Rebona Shalom. Why does my neighbor have a beautiful house or a beautiful spouse or a beautiful car or nachas from their children or great parnasa? Hashem says, relax, buddy. You get what you get and you don't get upset. I give you what's meant for you. Go back to your business. But when it comes to ruchnius, to spiritual ambition, envy is good. How do I know that? Chazal tells us, the Gemara says in Baba Basra, kinasofrim tar bechachma. The jealousy among scholars promotes, increases wisdom. That sense of competitiveness. Competitiveness in the physical arena, I want the biggest house, the nicest car, is unhealthy. But competitiveness in ruchnius and spirituality is a wonderful attribute. And so Hashem tells Aaron, beautiful. Channel it, direct it, don't worry, you're going to get to light the menorah. Next we have the consecration of the Levium. We have an unusual age discrepancy. Here the Levium are, are told in our parsha. 
When do they begin at? 25. But in last week or two weeks ago, Parsha, in Bamidbar, it said from 30. So which is it? Did the Levium begin to serve at 30? Or did the Levium begin to serve at 25? Rashi notes this. Says Rashi, there's a five-year training. At 25, you enter the training period, and at 30, you begin to serve. But the Gemara in Chulun derives from here. What do you see from here? Try it for five years. If five years you're not successful, move on. Five years is the amount of time to give a project or an effort, and if it's unsuccessful, move on. So according to Rashi, they joined an apprenticeship at 25, you began, you began your service, but why does the Torah give us two ages in order to teach us this important law that if by 30 you've not met success, drop it, move on. It wasn't meant for you. A very important, a very important insight. The Ramban has a different interpretation. The Ramban says at 25, they began to volunteer. Alevi at 25 was mature enough, was developed enough to volunteer. At 30, service became mandatory. That's when they received their, their assignment. Yes? Yeah. Here we're talking about Levi. Ben Chamesh Rasm Shana. Right. Okay. Five years. Five years to meet success. Next, the Parsha goes on. We just experienced it a few weeks ago. I spoke about it that Shabbos afternoon about Pesach Sheni. It's an amazing story. We're not going to harp on it now. But Hashem says to Moshe in the second year, in the first month, namely, E.R. I'm sorry, this is Nisan. In Nisan, Hashem says to them, time to offer the Korban Pesach. This is on the 14th and so on. Moshe instructs them to bring the Pesach. They bring the Pesach on the 14th. What happened? Pasuk Vav. There were people ineligible to bring the Pesach. They weren't able to offer it. And they approached Aaron and Moshe on that day. They said, look, we are contaminated. We're impure. We're ineligible to participate in this national effort. We can't mark and observe exactly the miracle that we experienced a year ago. And, Why should we be prevented? Why should we be precluded from being able to bring this Karban? We're part of this nation. We're part of this people. We experience this miracle. Why are we precluded? Why can't we be part of it? Moshe says, you know what? That's an excellent question. Stay here, I'm going to find out the answer. Now there's so many questions you could ask about this. Again, I don't want to go into it at length, but I'll just tell you very quickly, because it's such an important part of our Pasha, and it's a beautiful story. First of all, why does Moshe say? Moshe should say, look, it's not fair. It's not fair to you. Okay, it's not fair to you. Life's not fair. You get what you get and you don't get upset. You're impure. There's always next year. You can bring the carbon next year. You'll be part of the Pesach next year. Well, too bad. Moshe doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Taka, it's a good question. It's a legitimate complaint. I'll tell you what. Stay here. Let me research it. Let me find out what's going on. What gives Moshe the confidence 
to say, stay here, let me find out. So Chazal say, Moshe saw their sincerity. He saw their authenticity. He saw their yearning where it came from. And this exactly relates to the insight we shared a moment ago, exactly like our own and his complaint about the Nesim. Where do these people come from? What is their taina? It's not like they didn't say, you know, it's not fair to me, I didn't get to get Hanukkah, I didn't get Hanukkah presents, not fair, I want Hanukkah presents. What were they saying they were precluded from? Have you ever met a Jew who if God said to them, I'll tell you what, take Pesach off this year. Don't clean, don't spend a thousand dollars, a pound of matzah and meat and coleslaw. Don't make the Seder for a hundred people. Take this year off, take a year off. You're ineligible, so you're exempt. Tell you what, take a year off. Have you ever met a Jew who would turn to Hashem and say, take a year off? Lama nigara? No way! Why don't I get to clean? Why don't I get to go bankrupt and in debt? Why don't I get to host? Why don't I get to break my back? No way! Lama nigara? I want. The first message of this incredible story of Pesach Sheni is the story of Lama nigara. The story of people who say, I don't, I want. They're spiritually envious. There's a spiritual competitiveness. They say, no way. This is the national holiday. This is a collective holiday of experiencing, re-experiencing a miracle of tapping into the energy of freedom. Lama nigara. I won't be precluded. The Rambam. Based on the Gemara Psachim on Sadi Beis, says that Pesach Sheni is a regal bifnei atzma. It's its own independent holiday. Pesach Sheni is not Pesach just a second time. It's a new yontif. In fact, you don't clean for Pesach. Pesach Sheni, you can have chametz. You eat the matzah with the chametz. It's a different yontif. It's a regal b'fnei atzma. So what's the yontif? The answer is the yontif. It's a yontif of Lama Nigara. It's a yontif of a group of Jews who had every reason to say, fine, we're exempt. Nothing we could do. We were contaminated. Not our fault. They had every right to say, we accept it, we're exempt, we're going to sit this one out, Baruch Hashem. Really, there's no Tachanan? Fantastic. Really, as a hurricane, I can't go to Minyan? Awesome. Really, I'm, whatever, is Docha, whatever, I'm exempt? Great, I'm exempt. They say, no, I'm exempt. I want to say the long Tachanan. I want to be able to go to, Lama Nigara. Lama Nigara. I yearn. I aspire. I'm driven to feel the Rebona Shalom's presence in my life, to give him Nachas Ruach, we'll talk about later. What do you mean, Lama Nigara? So the first understanding of Pesach Sheni is, it's the Yantif of Lama Nigara. But there's an even deeper reason. Why were these people Tmeim? Why were they exempt? So the Gemara quotes a Machlokas. Gemara quotes a Machlokas. Either they were exempt because they were Tamei, they were Tamei because there was a Mes Mitzvah. Somebody had died, there was no one else to take care of them. So these individuals took care of them. The uh, Gemara in Sukkah, Chafei, quotes these different opinions. Or alternatively, they were the ones who carried Nadav and Aviyu out of the Mishkan when they died on that tragic day, on the inauguration of the Mishkan. They were the ones who were involved in the burial of Nadav and Aviyu. Or the third option is, these were the individuals who carried Yosef. Before Yosef dies, he makes his brothers promise, don't leave me in Mitzrayim. You're going to get out of here someday. And when you do, take me with you. I want to be buried. I want my destiny in the land of Israel. Don't leave me here in Mitzrayim. So they carry Yosef. 
In fact, the Torah tells us when everyone else runs to collect the spoils of the Egyptians who drowned in the sea, Moshe goes to collect the bones of Vaikach Atzmos Yosef Imo. Moshe is the greatest treasure that Moshe can carry is not the gold and the silver, but rather the Atzmos Yosef. But Moshe handed out the Atzmos Yosef and others carried Yosef's bones through the travels in the desert. And now they were impure. And the Medrash and Shmos Rabbah seems to see this opinion, this third opinion, as the correct one. These individuals who are Tmeim, who are Tmeim Lenefesh Adam, who is the Adam? They're Tmeim Lenefesh, the Nefesh that they're Tomei to is Yosef. They're carrying the bones of Yosef. And now when they come and say, why are we exempt? Why don't we get a chance? Rabbi Ari Khan of Barilan University has beautiful Svarim on the Parsha. And he suggests the following. He suggests this beautiful idea. Essentially, the Medrash is telling us that the mitzvah Pesach Sheni is given in the merit of Yosef. What's the connection? Because they were carrying Yosef, it's in the merit of Yosef. No, what's the deeper connection? The answer, he says, is think about Yosef and think about his life. Yosef, Yosef, this handsome, charismatic young man, life is filled with the greatest promises, alienated from his brothers. They contemplate killing him, and instead they throw him in a pit with snakes and scorpions, and ultimately they sell him into slavery, they abandon him, and he's far away from the greatest influence on his life from Yaakov. And despite everything he faces, he rises to greatness. And a Baruch Hu orchestrates things such that these brothers descend to Egypt, they rely on not knowing it's Yosef, but Yosef for the provisions for their very life. And they appear before him, and if you're Yosef, how do you react? Yosef recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And if you're Yosef, what do you do in that moment? You've been languishing, you've been isolated, you've been alienated, you've been abandoned, you've been on your own. You've struggled, you've been unfairly accused, you've sat and rotted in prison. And now you've got a chance, you've got a shot. If not revenge outright at your brothers, certainly you're going to unload on them. Certainly you're going to put them in their place. Certainly you're going to unleash some fury. What does Yosef do? He gives them a second chance. Yosef says, look, you didn't put me here. Rebbe Shalom willed it. Kaddish Baruch Hu orchestrated. I wouldn't be here if Hashem didn't want me to be here. So it wasn't so nice what you did, but don't think I'm going to take revenge. Remember, the brothers recoil when he reveals himself. They think it's their end. And Yosef's the one who says, no, relax. It's all good. I love you. Brothers, I haven't seen you. I forgive you. Yosef incredibly gives the second chance. And says Rav Khan, it's in the merit of Yosef giving his brothers a second chance that these individuals who carry Yosef's bones are given a second chance. They're given the yontif of, of Pesach Sheni. It's amazing. I once I wrote an article where I quoted the story that in Buchenwald, after the liberation on April 27, 1945, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, Rabbi J.J. Schachter's father, led a Pesach Sheni Seder in Buchenwald. If you Google it, you'll see there's a picture of the prisoners of Buchenwald still in Buchenwald experiencing a Pesach Sheni Seder. There's an amazing story about exactly how that Seder happened and the Jews who were upset with Hashem, but they gave him a second chance and they came to that Pesach Sheni Seder, not for now. But that's the story of Pesach Sheni. It's a regal b'fneyatzmo. It's either the regal of Lama Nigara. It's the yontif of, what do you mean I'm exempt? I don't want to be exempt. I want a chance, Hashem. Or it's the yontif of second chances. In whose merit do we have a yontif of second chances? In the merit of Yosef. Parsha continues. Divine signs. We would know. How would we know when to travel? Because Baruch showed us, showed us the Chatzotzros. We then get to the story of Yisro. Yisro reappears. This time his name is Chovav. Vayomer Moshe the Chovav, the bottom page 784. 
Moshe begs his father, New, we're traveling, we're journeying. Moshe's convinced they're going right into Israel. And Moshe says to his shver, something that has not often been repeated since, or said earlier, don't leave. You have to stay. You have to come with us. Come with us, and it'll be good. Because Hashem promised us a great destiny. And Yisro says, no, I'm going home. Don't go. You know the encampments. You will be the eyes for us. If you come, it'll be good for you. It'll be good for us. It's not like, you know, Moshe wanted his father-in-law just to pay. Leave the credit card. It'll be good for us. It'll be good for you. He wanted Yisro. But he didn't need a credit card. Rebona Shalom was taking care of everything. No, did Yisro stay? Did Yisro go? What happened? We don't know. In fact, it's Machlokas here in our Pasha between the Mephosh and the Ramban. The Ibnezer, the Sforno, they weigh in. Did Yisro stay? Did Yisro go? We don't know. Why did Moshe beg Yisro to stay? What motivated Moshe to beg Yisro to stay? Why did he want him to stay? There was something different about Yisro than every other member of the Jewish people. What was that difference? What was the difference? Not a trick question. Yisro is a convert. He's what other denominations would call a Jew by choice. A Jew by choice. The entire Jewish people stood at Har Sinai. Hashem held the mountain over their head. And he said, accept the Torah, mutav good. If not, it's going to be your burial place. You're done. Right? We on Shavuot spoke about the mountain held over our head like a chuppah, the royal wedding. And we stood with a Kodesh Baruch and we married. We married a Kodesh Baruch But the other version of the Gemara is that he held the mountain over our head. The Maral explains what does it mean he held the mountain over our head. Are we supposed to imagine that literally God lifted a mountain and held it over their head? God doesn't intervene with nature. He doesn't suspend the rules of nature if it's not critical. So the Maral says, no, it doesn't mean that literally he held the mountain. What does it mean? Where was the coercion? The coercion was in the revelation itself. A people who had just seen Hashem with the ten plagues in Egypt. A people who had just experienced the splitting of the sea. A people who heard God speak experienced an unprecedented and unparalleled revelation. A revelation that was so great, so profound, so undeniable that they had no choice. There was no choice. If you're driving on the highway and you normally have a heavy foot, you might go over the speed limit a little bit, but you notice a policeman in the lane next to you. Are you going to speed and fly past him? There are people who do that. They're called morons. (laughs) Nobody's going to speed and fly past the policeman. Now, do you, have, do you have free will at that moment? Technically, you could step on the gas, you could step on the brake, you could go on cruise control just underneath what the policeman's doing. Yeah, free will, technically, but do you really have free will? Of course not. It's the policeman right there. You're not going to go flying by him. The presence of the policeman, the presence of the authority, who with it brings the consequence to your action, suspends your free will in that moment. When the Rebona Shalom held the mountain over our head, what it means is his revelation was so great, so intense. His presence was so profound. There was no denying. How is it that we ever do anything wrong? Gemara says, 
anytime we make a poor decision, it's because nichnas banu ruach shtus, because this voice of insanity takes over. It's a voice of insanity that takes over. If you eat the chocolate cake, the cheesecake, when you know it's going to give you diabetes and high blood pressure and, and hypertension and a greater risk for heart disease, but you eat it anyway. How could you eat it anyway? Nichnas baruch shtus. Because for a moment you became a moron. Became a moron. Mesil Sharm says, we're learning this on Wednesday mornings, we said this last week or two weeks ago. It says an animal tastes something and realizes there's poison, there's something dangerous, something harmful. The animal recoils, withdraws, stays away from that which is bad to it. What does a human being do? Says, can I have another? A human being who thinks it's so superior to the animal lacks that innate, natural sense not to sabotage themselves. The Ramchal, Mr. Sharon quotes this to humble us, to realize we think we're so superior to an animal. The lowly animal knows to avoid that which is harmful. And what do we do? Can I have another portion? Can I have a third dessert? We go back for more, even though we know. So how do we do something which we know is harmful? How do we sabotage our physical health, our relationship health, our emotional health, our spiritual health? How do we ever make a poor choice? Because in that moment, it's not revealed to us. In other words, your lab results are not sitting next to the cheesecake. If the cheesecake were offered to you while they were drawing blood, you would say no. If the cheesecake were offered to you when the doctor told you the lab results, you would say no. If the cheesecake were offered to you while you were standing on the scale, you'd say for sure, no. Why do we say yes? Because in that moment, our mind goes into some wacky rationalizing ability. I didn't really eat so much yesterday. All right, whatever the incredible ability of the mind, it's a ruach shtus. It's a ruach shtus. So we can disobey Hashem when the ruach shtus, when the voice of insanity comes in. But when a Kosh Baruch is clear as day, when you just experienced a miracle, when Hashem splits the sea for you and gives ten plagues to you and speaks to you directly, the first two dibros, that's kafalim harkegigis. That's him holding a mountain over your head. You don't really, that's your standing on the scale. That's him waving the lab results in your face. It takes away your free will. That's what it means. So all Klai Yisrael, who had received the Torah, were coerced. We didn't really have a choice. We didn't have a choice. We were coerced by the intensity of the revelation we had experienced. Who's the one exception who wasn't there? But he says, you know what? I heard about it. I heard what's going on and I got to check this out. Yisro is a Jew by choice. And what I would suggest to you is that Moshe is saying to his father-in-law, we need you here. We need you here. Because everyone else was born into it. Everyone else feels forced by it. Everyone else doesn't picture having an alternative to it. You experimented with the world's religions. You could be anywhere else doing anything else and you choose to be here. We need that passion. We need that enthusiasm. We need your presence. Now, the Zohar says, by the way, that every convert was present at Harsinai. Every would-be future convert, the Neshama also was present at Harsinai. But leave that mystical interpretation out. What Moshe is saying is, we need you here. And I think the modern day application of this is understanding the critical role of Balei Tshuva and Gerim within the Jewish community. When Balei Tshuva are among us, when Gerim, converts are among us, they remind, they're a machayev, they remind us who were born into it, who never thought we had an alternative to it, who feel coerced into it. When we see those who are making the choice, the leap for it, what a source of inspiration. 
What a source of inspiration. Gemara says, Converts are as difficult to the Jewish people as boils. Having converts among you is like having a bad rash. It's a big machlokas, what that means. Some say converts, they're not always genuine, they're disingenuous, and therefore it creates complications with yichus. But Tosus quotes an interpretation from a convert who says, no, you know why? You know why it's hard for the Jews like a bad rash? Because Jews are walking around, you're just doing mitzvahs like it's a burden, like you don't want to be there, like you could care less, like you have to, like you wish you could be like the other. But here comes the convert. Here comes the Baal They love it. They can't learn enough. They can't do enough. They're so enthusiastic. It makes the Jews look bad. It makes the from from birth look bad. It makes the born Jewish look bad. It says Tosos, that's what it means, Kashem Kisapachas. And maybe that's what Moshe is begging his father-in-law, Yisra, you got to stay. Not because he wants to make everyone else look bad, but he wants us all to be inspired by the contagious enthusiasm of someone who's made that choice. Parsha now continues really what should be a new Sefer. Really the Torah should not be five books, but seven books of Torah. Here we have the upside down Nuns, page 786, sectioning off these two Psukim. Two psukim that we recite when we take out the Torah and put it away. Really, they don't belong here. They're here because we're about to transition into the complaints. And in order not to have in succession too much negativity, we break it up with this section. Why is it bracketed with upside down nuns? Well, a nun looks like a bracket, so practically it's an excellent choice. But there's a much deeper reason which we're not going to share right now. But the Medrash says it's in the merit of these nuns. The Medrash says it's in the merit of these nuns that Mashiach will come. A nun. The nunin. It's a beautiful interpretation. But I'm not going to tell you now. Next we have the Mesoninim. Now the complainers come and they start saying to Hashem, we're not happy with the man. It doesn't taste good, even though it could taste like any delicacy in the world. We're sick of it. We're bored of it. We want something new. We're not happy. We're not happy. Misoninim. I've shared with you before that word. You know what the problem here of the misoninim is? It doesn't say there were legitimate people with a legitimate grievance. It says they were misoninim. Misoninim is what form of the verb? Hitpa. It's, it's reflexive. What it means is they transform themselves into a group of complainers. There's a difference between normal, happy, legitimate, reasonable people who have a reasonable complaint and complainers. You know, I can tell you as a rabbi that there are people who've come to me, this is not, I'm not happy with that, and why is this? And this is terrible about the community, this is terrible about you, this is terrible about everything. And, and you know, if you're a people pleaser, you just want everyone to be happy. You want everyone to be happy. And you feel guilty when they're not, or you feel inadequate when they're not. And I've learned in my years of the rabbinate to distinguish between two types of complaints. Reasonable people with a reasonable complaint that has merit, in which case you should accept it and embrace it and try to fix it. And then there are the people who that some point you realize, you know, I'm trying to make them happy by resolving that which they're complaining about. But that's a mistake. They're only happy when they're complaining. Because it's not about the complaint. They're just complainers. And so you have to distinguish between a happy person with a legitimate, reasonable complaint and a complainer who is just not happy unless they're complaining. The reason a Baruch reacts so harshly to this group is they weren't reasonable people with reasonable feedback. 
they had transformed themselves into a bunch of fabissina, disgruntled, miserable complainers. And that, there's no tolerance for. There's no tolerance. There's no tolerance for complainers. Kodesh Baruch loses it. Moshe loses it. Because to have a reasonable complaint, of course, we accept it. We want to learn from it. We want to grow from it. But to be complainers, that we can't tolerate. Now we have the Sanhedrin. Very interesting contradiction. Is Moshe one of the Sanhedrin? Is he in addition to the Sanhedrin? Is it 70? Is it 71? Kodesh Baruch responds to the people. Right, gather the 70 elders and Moshe. So is it 71? Is it 70 with Moshe? What's Moshe's role? There's a beautiful shot of the Rav, which we're not going to get into. The new prophets who try to join Eldad and Medad try to break off from the group. And then we have the story of the Slav. And now we have the end of the Parsha, which is what I wanted to get to. The end of the Parsha. Page 794. This is what we're going to study together with our remaining time. Page 794 in the article Miriam and Aaron now speak against Moshe regarding the Isha Kushis. What's a Kushi woman? Ethiopian, dark skinned, that he took because he married a dark skinned woman. Now, what was their complaint? They said, did I, did, does Hashem just speak to Moshe? He speaks to us too. But Hashem overheard their conversation. Now, what were they talking about? What stimulated this conversation? What exactly were they talking about? What did Hashem hear? And how did it bother him? And how does the Kodesh Baruch Hu respond? So Rashi says, kasha. It doesn't say Vayomer. It says Vatidaber. Miriam and Aaron are talking among themselves. And their conversation, their dialogue, described as dibur, not amira, says Rashi, dibur is lashon kasha. I'm in Perak Yudbeis, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 12, verse 1. Dibur is lashon kasha, it's harsh. It's harsh. Daber ha'isha adonia aratitano kashos, ain amira b'chomakam el lashon tachanunim. Amira is soft. Amira is to appease. Vayomro, al na'achaitaro, v'mishamun na'dibri. She started speaking first. Miriam initiates this conversation. Why doesn't it say Aaron Miriam? Why does it say Miriam and Aaron? Rashi says because Miriam initiates the conversation. What's the complaint? The complaint is that Moshe has withdrawn from relations with his wife. Moshe is living with no intimacy. He's leaving his wife. Intimacy, by the way, is not a concession to the frailty of men. Intimacy is in the marriage contract. It's in the ksuba. Intimacy is a halachic obligation. Sher ona. Ona is the obligation the husband has to the wife. It's an obligation. In other words, it's not a concession to the Yetzirah, which has a drive for sexuality. We're going to give part two of the class we started on Shavuos this coming week about Me Too and the Torah's timeless wisdom to create a society that is best protected from the Me Too phenomenon, which I said begins with understanding a healthy perspective of human sexuality. It's not a concession. The Medrash says, Tov Ma'od, Zayetzahara. Sexuality, the Yetzahara for that, which Freud identified correctly as an incredible driver in man, and you can accept that either 
gender specific or generically, however you prefer. But that drive is, is ultimately very healthy. So much so that the Torah sees it as holy, as Kedusha. Rabbi Lef spoke this past Shabbos here, Rabbi Zev Lef, about the Nazir and how we achieve holiness not through abstinence. Abstinence is, if you can't do it any other way, it's the, it's the, uh, the preferable option. But really, it's not the ideal. The ideal is not abstinence, it's embracing food, intimacy, and the like, and elevating it. So they see that Moshe has withdrawn. He's not providing intimacy. And they say, I don't understand. Is Moshe greater than us? Who does Moshe think he is that he's such a holy roller, so holier than thou, that he needs to withdraw from his wife? We too receive prophecy. And we're able to lead healthy marriages. So says Rashi, how did Miriam know that Moshe had withdrawn? So Rabbi Nassim Omar, Omer, Miriam, because Miriam was with Tzipora, they were getting a, a, a latte at Starbucks, when she hears Tzipora say, Eldad and Medad want to be prophets, Kevon Shashama Tzipora, Amra, they want to go into the rabbinate and nebuch for their wives. Eldad and Medad want to become prophets. Oy vavoy, says Tzipora, either under her breath or out loud to Miriam, her sister-in-law, nebuch on their wives. They're never going to see him. Nebuch on their wives, they're never going to be with them. Because they're going to withdraw just like my husband Moshe has from me. Umisham yada Miriam. That's how Miriam knew. So now Miriam's having a conversation with Aaron where she's saying, did you hear what Tzipora told me? Tzipora heard about Eldad and Medad, said Nebuch on their wives. And, and Derech Agav, in passing, I realize what she's saying is our brother Moshe has withdrawn from her. Concludes the Gemara. Rashi quotes... You know, Miriam was not saying this to speak idle gossip about her brother. Miriam admired her brother greatly. She wasn't ranking on Moshe. Why was she sharing this? She was genuinely concerned for her sister-in-law Tzipora. Is this fair to Tzipora? Is Moshe doing the right thing? Why is Moshe doing it if we don't have to do it? She's having what she thinks is a productive conversation. And yet, her consequence is so great. Kodesh Baruch Hu sees it as... Lashon Hara nonetheless. It always bothered me, by the way. Aren't we speaking about Lashon Hara, about Miriam, by telling the story of Miriam when we're criticizing Miriam for speaking Lashon Hara? Mm-hmm. But leave that aside for the moment. So, so Rashi quotes Kalvachomer. If Miriam is held to such a high standard, if Miriam is punished when her conversation is not idle gossip, but is for the purpose of being productive, then all the more so when we speak idle gossip, when we share Lashon Hara. Now what does it mean, Miriam is saying to her brother, Is this degrading? Is it disparaging? Is she saying, our, our black sister-in-law? Is it Lashon Hara about the sister-in-law? So Rashi explains, She may not have even been a kushi. What, what Miriam was saying was, the same way it's undeniable that somebody with dark skin has dark skin, it's undeniable the beauty of our sister-in-law Tzipora. Why is Moshe not being intimate with her? She's magnificent. She's beautiful. Everyone knows it. Everyone who sees it identifies. It's as clear and present in her appearance as it is that somebody who's dark is dark. Someone who's black is black. Kushis begamatria says Rashi is yafas mar'eh. So much so that kushis is a euphemism for beauty. 
She was beautiful. So the Torah identifying Tzipporah as a dark-skinned woman is not degrading or disparaging about her. It's the opposite. It's speaking about her beauty. And it's not disparaging somebody who's dark-skinned. It's saying as, as obvious and skin-deep as it is that somebody, the color of someone's skin is Tzipporah's beauty, is her beauty. Alodos ha'isha, about the matter regarding the woman, says Rasha, alodos gerusheha, regarding their split. Kisha kushis lakach, because Moshe married, matam adlomer, it's very redundant. Alodos, Miriam spoke to Aram about her brother Moshe regarding the matter of the dark-skinned woman, euphemism for the beautiful woman he married, because he married a dark-skinned woman. You just told me that. It's totally redundant. Says Rashi, Some are beautiful on the outside, but they're gross on the inside. Some have a beautiful inside, but they have an ugly appearance on the outside. This Tzipora, she was beautiful inside and out. So Miriam's talking to her and says, What's with our brother Moshe? His wife is beautiful inside and out. And what is he doing? Withdrawing from her. Where is the relationship? Where is the responsibility? Where is the responsibility? Where is the responsibility? Pasuk Beis. Vayomru. Now they both said. Vayomru is in the plural. This is not just Miriam now talking to Aaron. Aaron agrees with Miriam. They're now saying it to one another. Harak ach b'moshe diber Hashem alogam banu diber. What does God just talk to Moshe? He feels so holy, he's got to withdraw. He speaks to us too. He speaks to us too. Vayishma Hashem, and Hashem hears what's going on. Says Rashi, Harak ach imo levado diber Hashem? Gambano v'lopirashni midarech eretz. We've not withdrawn. We still have a healthy intimacy in our relationships. Why does Moshe think he's better? Says the Sforno. Harak ach b'moshe diber ha'omna moshe levado zachal zeh sh'yeh dvar Hashem diber Hashem yuchari lav levado? Moshe is not the only one who, in addition to hearing Hashem in Torah, hears from him. We also do. The, the Talmidei Chachamim, Hashem, defends their honor. So too, Hashem hears this conversation between Miriam and Aaron. And because of Moshe's special status, Hashem defends his honor. Says the Ibn Ezra, Vatadabir, Miriam Pasakalaf. He dibra gam Aaron hiskim ohichrish. Okay, ne'enash. Aaron either said the same thing or he was silent. We know that a person who listens to the Lashon Hara in some ways is described as even worse than the one who speaks it. So either Aaron also engaged in the same speech or he simply listened but he didn't protest. He didn't protest. And therefore he too is accountable. He too is accountable. So what does Hashem respond? What's Hashem's response? Ra'ish. Moshe anav ma'od mikol adam asher adama, and the man Moshe was exceedingly humble, more than any other person on the planet, and so therefore Hashem stands up for His honor. We're not going to continue. We'll save that for another time, maybe next year. But I want not. We're not stopping here. But this pasuk is enough more to say on this pasuk. So Hashem intervenes and He says, "Are you talking about my Moshe that way?" Ve'ish Moshe anav ma'od. What are you talking about? Moshe is not any ordinary person. Vayish Moshe anav ma'od. What does that mean? Says the Orachai Makadosh, 
ואיש משה ענב, הודיעו הכסף וזוכה לפי מה שכסף שדברו בפניו, נעשה נכסף טעם שרצוח השם לעשות כל אמור בעניין. מטעם כי איש משה ענב מאוד, ולצד ענב סוסו נמנע מלהשיג להם בתשובה המסחייבת לבוא בעניין. משה heard the conversation, it happened in his presence. But what did Moshe do? What did he say to defend himself? Gornish, nothing. He was The Gemara says you should always be among those who are insulted and not those who insult back. Accept it. Take it. Okay. Moshe, because of his humility and modesty, Moshe was silent. But Hashem couldn't allow that to stand. So that's why Hashem stood up on Moshe's behalf because if we were up to Moshe, he would have remained quiet. What does it mean he's an anav? Says Rashi, anav shafal v'savlan. He sees himself as low. V'savlan. What's a savlan? Taking patience. Patient. But it's more than just patient. Savlan is, he's sovel. Sovel is, mitachas sivlos mitzrayim. Sovel is somebody who's forbears, somebody who's, accepts that which is difficult, who carries the burden, sufferance, who suffers, is sovel. Savlanut, Ravolbi says, the word savlanut, patience, is the capacity to be sovel, is to live with discomfort. That's what patience is. When you're forced to be patient and wait, if, if it weren't difficult, it wouldn't require patience. It requires patience because you're being sovel while you're waiting. Moshe is humble, he's a savlan, he's willing to be to experience sufferance. Says the Ibn Ezra Anav Ma'ud, B'mishkal shalo v'atam shalo b'kesh gedula al achiv. The Ibn Ezra says, Moshe is so humble, he never sought distinction over his brothers. He never wanted a greater status. Says the Ramban, V'yish Moshe Anav Ma'ud, L'hagid ki Hashem kana l'abav v'ran v'nesuso. The reason Hashem loved him and chose him was because of his humility. Ki hu lo yane ariv la'olam afim yada. Rav Avram, he's referring to the Ibn Ezra, Moshe never initiated greatness over anyone else. And he wasn't arrogant through his distinction at all. Even though he was superior. They're speaking frivolously about him. And he is greater. But he never sees himself as, as any greater than they. So, what was their great violation? Stam Lashon the problem is Moshe is anav ma'od mikol adam. HaKadosh Baruch was cutting them off and saying, you think he's withdrawn because he thinks he's holier than you? You think he's withdrawn out of any sense of ego or arrogance? It's the opposite. Moshe is the greatest, most humble man who ever lived. So that's not his reason, and you're wrong for suggesting it, and you're wrong all together. So what was their mistake? What was their problem? Rav Shechter in his Sefer on Chumash says the following. It says, you know, in Parshas Kiseitze, the Torah repeats this incident, and in fact includes a commandment to remember it. The Magen Avram, in Orachayim, Simen Samech, quotes the view of the Ramban, who counts it in the mitzvos, in the, in the Minyan mitzvos, that you have to mention the sin of Miriam every day. And the Zuchiros that you find in the Siddur, after davening, included among them is to remember, which again, I point out, is peculiar. Miriam spoke Lashon Hara, so every single day we remember and speak Lashon Hara about her. But leave that question aside. So he explains 
the Magen of Ram, the Ramban, Chazal did not enact a yearly Kriyasa Torah of this parsha as we do for Parsha Zachor, out of respect for the righteous Miriam, so as not to publicize her Avera. Nevertheless, when Parsha's Baloscha is read as Parsha Sashavua, the Balkari and those listening should have in mind they wish to fulfill the additional mitzvah. For the Ramban, just like Zachor, the reading of the end of our Parsha, remembering this incident with Miriam, and its consequence is a positive biblical commandment. Now, the two intentions behind the requirement to be mindful of Chait Miriam. First, we read the Parsha in order to remember the severity of the Avera of Lashon Hara. Chavetz Chaim says that this Parsha is one of the sources of the Avera of Lashon Hara. The Sifri elaborates, if Miriam was criticism of Moshe was not carried out before him, was only intended constructively, was punished with Saras, how much more so we have to be careful regarding the Isser. So the first understanding of why we would have a biblical mitzvah to remember this episode is, to remember the severity of Lashon Hara, and this is one of the sources, the Torah sources of the prohibition of Lashon Hara. But the Rav felt there is an in order to qualify as one of the shows, the Sheish Zechiros, in order to qualify as one of the six mandatory remembrances, the theme of the event has to be connected with the Ikare Emuna. In order to be obligated to remember it daily, it has to somehow be intertwined with the 13 principles of faith, which are the core of our belief. So what's the connection between remembering what happened with Miriam? Which of the 13 principles of faith is it connected to? Oh, so the Rav favored the explanation of Rav Kook in his Siddur, Ola Sri'iya, that the purpose of remembering Chait Miriam is to be reminded of the Rambam's seventh Iker, that Moshe was Av Hanavim, who preceded and who followed him. He was the father, the greatest of all of the prophets. This belief will ensure the everlasting nature of Torah Hashem to always realize it's impossible for another Navi to nullify any of Moshe's words. The Rav in part of the eulogy he delivered for his uncle, the Briska Rav, explained the source for this Rambam is the response Hashem gave to Miriam in our parsha. Miriam, after overhearing Zipporah lamenting what she thought was a necessary abstinence on the part of the wives of the Nevi'im, criticizes her brother. And how does Hashem respond? What well, we just read. Commenting, which includes that pe'el pe'adaber bo, Hashem says, I speak to Moshe face to face. Face to face, I speak to Moshe. Right, it's here, Pasuk. Notice what's under the word Bamara, a love. He says, I speak to Hashem with a kamatz. So when it comes to all of the prophets, it's Mara with a kamatz. When it comes to Moshe, it's Mara with a segel. <coughs> when it comes to other prophets, it's Bachalom in a dream. When it comes to Moshe, it's pe'el peh. Commenting on this, Rashi quotes the statement of Chazal, it was Hashem himself who instructed Moshe to separate from his wife. Rav Chaim explains what would seem to be an obvious difficulty in this Pesukim. Although Hashem contrasts the Nevu of Moshe with that of the other Nevi'im, the same term, Mem Resh Aleph Hey, is used to describe both. So Rav Chaim notes the slight difference. A mar'a with a comet connotes a mirror. Mar'e with a segel connotes a looking glass or a telescope. The other Nevi'im, as Nevi'im was described as a mirror, saw a reflection of the words of Hashem, as one who perceives the shadow of an object. In contrast with the Nevi'im of Moshe, who saw the actual word of Hashem, as one who looks through a telescope. Moshe is described with the phrase, Utmuras Hashem Yabit, the image of Hashem does he gaze. It's the special degree of Moshe's Nevi'im. He's the only Navi authorized to transmit mitzvahs ladoros. Other Nevi'im can institute a mitzvah temporarily. Only Moshe could have instituted the mitzvahs that we've lasted forever. Rashi explains the name Betzalel has the Kenoshim. Betzal Kel Hayisa. You were in Hashem's shadow. Betzalel, unlike Moshe, understood the proper order of the Mishkan's construction. In that issue, Moshe's Nevuah was on the level of other Nevi'im. A shadow. That was the one exception. 
Similarly, the Kedushas Levi points out that Moshe's Navu was not always in this level of Adon Nevi'im. He cites the Sifri, and so on and so forth. The bottom line is that Moshe was categorically different than other Nevi'im. He was categorically different. And therefore, the Chait of Miriam, and the reason we invoke it, is to remember our Mesorah. Our commitment to our Mesorah and Torah is to know that what Moshe instituted, our Torah, is immutable. It doesn't change. It's not flexible. Yes, we have rabbinic laws, and yes, we have to understand and analyze the application of law, but the Torah itself is immutable. How do we know it's immutable? Because concurrently, by believing that Moshe's leadership is unprecedented and unparalleled and irreversible, is belief in the Mesorah itself. And that's why it's so fundamental and foundational. That's why it's so critical. That was Miriam's mistake to question her brother as if he was unequal with them, as he was just any other Navi. Belief in Moshe is belief in the Torah's authority itself. And therefore we invoke the remembrance of it to remember Moshe's greatness. I want to end with one other idea. One other quick idea. Because what does Hashem say to testify about Moshe's greatness? Is, he says, Moshe is the most humble of all men. Moshe is unique. He's incredibly humble. Means that even though that stature, you know, we have uh, an expression that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? Which is true, as our mayor sits in jail or the mayor of Boca was taken out of office. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because often with power, with distinction, with fame, comes ego, comes arrogance, comes feeling one is above the law. And here Hashem's response is no. Moshe is categorically different. He is superior to any other human being and yet paradoxically, at the exact same time, he's the most humble ever. So what is humility? If Moshe were really humble, maybe he shouldn't accept that position of distinction. Maybe he shouldn't stand and teach and preach to all 600,000 or 2 to 3 million people. So that's a misunderstanding of what humility is. True humility is not thinking less of oneself, it's thinking of oneself less often. Humility is not thinking less of oneself, it's thinking of itself less often. Humility is not saying that you're not good at something, or that you don't have talents or skills, or that you don't have a mission. Humility is understanding where it comes from and how it obligates you. The Rambam and the Ramban, I've shared this very often, both the Rambam in Hilchos Deus and the Ramban in the letter to his son describe uh, humility as something we need to pursue in the extreme. All other character traits should be in the Shvil HaZahav, the golden mean, should have a measure. The exception is humility, which we have to have in the extreme. The Ramban writes in his letter, Kasher If you can conquer anger, Then you'll become humble. Says the Ramban, humility is the most praiseworthy, it is the greatest of all of the qualities. How did they know that? How did the Rambam and the Ramban both know that humility is so critical that it is the most important? Rav Chaim Vital says, they knew it from our Pasha. The fact that Hashem singles out humility more than anything else, they knew it from our Parsha. Most often, Anivas is translated as humility. But the term humility, anyone know where it comes from? The Latin. The Latin. Humility. The English word humility comes from the Latin humus. H-U-M-U-S, which is not humus, but humus. Humus means to see oneself as lowly, as coming from the earth. But that's not, humi- that's not what Anivas means. Anivas is not seeing yourself as lowly or unworthy. 
Anivas is seeing yourself as having a greatness. You come from Hashem, but your greatness is on loan. It's never owned. It's only as long as Hashem gives it to you. And it doesn't entitle you, it obligates you. It's exactly, it's exactly the opposite sense. And maybe that's, it's the mission for you which you were born. And I want to come full circle to the beginning of the parsha. Maybe that's what it means. We said, Aaron, Aaron did everything was commanded. In which Rashi notes, wow, this is the great praise of Aaron, Shloshina, he didn't change. Simple meaning is he didn't change the order of the lighting of the menorah. The Svasema says he didn't change means he didn't lose his enthusiasm. But maybe Shloshina means he didn't change the mission for which he was created. Humility is understanding our mission and pursuing it, fulfilling it. It's, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is realizing that whatever greatness is within you only comes from Hashem and it can disappear at a moment's notice. And I close by relating it to the daf. Because one last thing. Hold on, Steve, listen to this. One last thing. An amazing daf today. Daf Yomri today, Zvachem Memvav, lists what are the intents. The person bringing a korban, a sacrifice, has to have six things in mind. One of them is L'Shem, L'Shem Hashem, that you're doing this avoda, you're doing the sacrifice for God. But a separate one is L'Shem Nichoach, for satisfaction. What is L'Shem Nichoach? So the Gemara derives, Nichoach, L'Shem HaNachas Ruach. You're giving Nachas Ruach to Hashem. The reason that you're doing it. Our avoda, the mitzvahs that we do, are not because God commanded us. One should feel while we do it that we're giving Nachas to our Father. So the Kedushas Levi, Rebbe Yitzchok, in Purim, talks about our Gemara, and he says that maybe you'll say, who am I to give nachas ruach to Hashem? I'm a lowly, insignificant worm food. What am I to give nachas to Hashem? He's everything, I'm nothing. He says, that's a mistake. That's false anivus. That's not true humility. Humility is to realize that I am a ben melech. I'm royalty. Prince gives the king nachas. The king gets the greatest nachas there is. Hashem is our father, he's the king. We are his royal princes and princesses, and our choices, our behavior, our actions, when we overcome that Ruach Shtus, when we don't listen to that voice of insanity and make the right choices, we give him the greatest Nachas Ruach. That's the Pshat and the Pasuk in Yeshaya. Sos Asis Bashem. I will find joy. Sos Asis Bashem. Where's my satisfaction? In knowing I give Hashem satisfaction. The greatest joy I can have is knowing that I give Hashem joy. So the humility to say, I don't matter to Hashem, is a false counterfeit humility. Real humility is meaning, is saying, I matter so much to Hashem, because everything I have is from Hashem, that doesn't entitle me, it gives me great responsibility and obligation. Have a great week.